Welcome to the Highlands Current Podcast. I'm Chip Rowe, the editor of The Current. In each episode, our reporters will take you behind the scenes as they speak with residents of the Highlands about their interests, passions, and adventures. In this episode, arts editor Allison Rooney speaks with Peter Ulian, a Beacon resident with a collection of occupations. One that occupies much of his time is writing in many genres, from fiction to plays. He and Allison will discuss one of his short stories, The Sun Sets on the Hall of Justice, which is included in a new anthology of crime fiction, Say What Now?, published by Murderous Inc. Press as part of its Crime Ucopia series. Here's Allison and Peter. This is Allison Rooney, and I am the art slash people editor at the Highlands Current. And I'm happy to be speaking today with Peter Ulian, who uh, is a wearer of many hats. And in fact, my first question to you was: we we actually last met for an interview. I looked it up in 2014, and at that point, some of those hats included puppeteer, librettist, and security guard. Not a trio that's usually encountered very often. Um, you're also teaching and, and writing non-theatrical material. So I'm wondering what hats have you added and what hats have you subtracted in the intervening years? So I'm not currently working as a security guard. In fact, I let my security guard license lapse. Not that I had anything against that line of work, but I got busy with other things. I'm doing much more teaching. I'm now actually a teacher at a public school, um, and uh, I've been doing that for a couple of years now. So that's definitely a hat I have that has expanded. I still do puppeteering, although a lot less. At the time, I think I was actually doing like birthday parties and and things like that. I mostly only do it on special occasions now. Um, I love doing puppeteering, but it's it's very intense and time consuming, and uh, it's easier for me to sort of do it. I guess this is sort of strange that I felt this way, but I felt like. Um, I didn't want it to become too much of a job, even though I love getting paid for what I do. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was something very special about uh, doing puppet shows for, you know, I've done puppet shows as a part of benefits at the Howland Library. Um, I do frequent puppet shows or annual puppet shows at my synagogue for Hanukkah and sometimes other occasions. And those are really special events for me. And I found when I did it more, it became a little bit more stressful. And I like to keep it fun. So I still do puppeteering, but less of that. What do you teach? Oh, so I teach English. Okay. Um, I thought you might. Yes, <laughs> I do teach English. I have also taught drama. Um, I'm certified as an English teacher and as a drama teacher. Uh, my drama classes, because of the nature of the school I was in at the time, were more sort of English classes, but with dramatic texts as okay. our text. Although we did do some playwriting. I had the students write short plays. Um, and we did a lot of reading out loud, uh, but it was a little hard to get these particular students up on their feet and doing theater games and things like that. They weren't quite ready for that. But so I've done that. And this year, actually, I'm working as a reading teacher, which is, you know, uh, as an English teacher, you have a lot of the same skills that go into being a reading teacher. So there's a lot of overlap, but it's not entirely the same thing. So I've sort of had to learn a new set of skills as well as employ my English teacher skills. And basically what that involves is a lot of pushing into classes and helping students with their work. Um, as well as pulling students out and helping them with reading skills. These are students, these are all middle school students, fifth to eighth grade. So they can read. I don't need to start from scratch, but they don't necessarily all have the reading skills that they need. You know, how to, how to read carefully, how to read closely, um, how to understand the questions about what they've just read. So I've been working on those kind of skills with them. 
Has this teaching influenced your own writing or your own methods of, of writing? I think that it has. One of the things, actually, you know, you're asking about hats. So one of the things I started doing since I started teaching is uh, writing and fortunately getting published a lot more poetry. And part of the reason for that was because teaching is so intensive and draining that, uh, you know, n- not necessarily in a bad way, but it takes, you know, it's a lot of mental energy. Mm-hmm. So poems were a little easier for me to focus on because they're shorter. They don't actually take less time, but they're, they, they are in sort of e- more easily digestible units. Um, and I've always written some poetry, but I didn't really think of myself as a poet. But I, I started writing more poetry and sending it out. And I was lucky enough to get a, a, got a chapbook that was published as well as mm-hmm. poems that have appeared in periodicals and anthologies and one collection, a uh, full-length collection of poetry. Um, mm-hmm. So I've sort of put that hat on. Speaking of long and short forms, I know that you've also recently had a short story published. And that short story, I believe, is part of a longer book that you're still writing or you're in the process of, I don't know where in the process you're in, but um, did you conceive of the short story independently of the book or did you think of the two as, uh, you know, as one enclosing the other? So the short story sort of emerged as I was researching and beginning to write the book. So the the story takes place in uh, 1933 in Los Angeles. So I was doing a lot of research about the period. And in particular about corruption, because it was an incredibly corrupt world. Uh, The mayor in the 1930s literally had his brother had a job in the mayor's office accepting bribes for the mayor. That was his job. He had his own office. Not a bad thing. Yeah, right. Totally. (laughs) So it was very corrupt. Um, So in researching that, I came across a historical event, which was an investigation into crimes that involved very, very rich people. And it was very interesting because it was, uh, there was obviously with the amount of corruption going on, there was um, an effort to cover it up. And the people who discovered it sort of tried their best to kind of bring some justice within the limits of what they were able to do under those circumstances. So that really intrigued me. And immediately I saw that this could both be part of my novel, but also could be extracted from the novel as a standalone story. So the story exists both as a short story and in a slightly different form is sort of woven in the larger novel that I'm working on. Well, I I read the story the other day and it's quite riveting. And one thing I was thinking about is the genre and the era that it's set in are frequently paired because they were being written during that time. Mm -hmm. And there are some, to use a word I don't like using, but there are some tropes that are often part of these stories and you've got some of them in there. How, how do you keep it fresh when you're, you're writing a noir or, you know, a California noir that's set in, in the early 30s in Los Angeles? It's just it's it feels like and it does read as if it could be populated by Warner Brothers character actors. Mm-hmm. Was that was that the goal? And how do you how do you make it your own within yeah. that? So I think it involves both knowing and loving the genre, which I do enough to be able to draw on those tropes to the degree that they help tell the story, but also not feel handcuffed by them. So, for example, there's a few really catchy phrases that some of the characters might say or think that are, to me, reminiscent of 
the great turns of phrase that an author like Raymond Chandler would come up with. But I don't overdo that. Um, I kind of sprinkle them throughout the piece in, in, in modest proportions. It's funny because I've been listening to a lot of radio dramas from the 40s and 50s, and the crime and mystery ones are, it's, it's so interesting to see how quickly that kind of hard-boiled noir style was adopted everywhere, because they're all written in that style with that same kind of jazzy, slangy, very descriptive language with strange, unexpected metaphors. And it, at the same time, if some of them are quite clearly satires of that same way of characters expressing themselves. So it's funny how quickly the culture, or at least that that aspect of it, the mystery and crime storytelling, at least in the U.S., adopted those tropes. And actually listening to those stories has been really interesting, listening to those radio dramas, because it got me a lot to think about um, how that language is used, when it becomes silly, and when it can become effective. So that was that was part of it. And I th I think the other thing is, you know, when you're writing about a detective character in the 1930s, it suggests a lot of potential mirrors that you can mm. you can employ and images that you can borrow. And to a certain degree. I try to resist that, and I try to treat my characters, even if the character is a hard-boiled detective, I try to treat him as a real person um, who has real thoughts, emotions, and feelings. The same thing with the there's the two main characters are a, uh, an investigator and his female colleague at work, who's actually a secretary but is secretly working as an investigator. Right. Um, and that was an so the the women in these hard-boiled noirs are they're wonderfully drawn characters. They tend to be femme fatales if you think about Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity and Lauren yeah. Bacall and The Big Sleep. They sort tend of hand on hip and exactly and got, the, got the glare going. Exactly. So there's covering some of something that. up. Yeah, no, totally. And there, so there's some of that attitude in this character, but she's a professional working investigator. Uh, rather than a femme fatale who's trying to, in some way, trick the uh, the hero in some way, which is a trope that comes up over and over and over again. I'd say if there's a a model for the for the female character, it probably is more Jean Arthur in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, or um, again Barbara Stanwyck, but in so someone uh, plucky and appealing but dogged. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, okay. plucky and appealing but dogged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love Jean Arthur. So. She's great. Yeah. How did it wind up uh, getting, did you submit it to the British publisher or how did it wind up in, being published in the UK? Yeah, so that was funny because it was really had only to do with the length of the story. So the story is just under 10,000 words, which is long for short story, not impossible, but it's long. And there's not a lot of publishers uh, of short fiction looking for stories of that length. The average is five, 6,000 okay. words. So I had a limited number of places I could send it to. So I sent it to those places, and um, fortunately for me, the British publisher, Murderous Ink Press, who puts out anthologies of crime fiction, responded and wanted to publish it. So it was just kind of dumb luck, but my search for publishers was guided almost entirely. Well, first of all, I knew it had to be a publisher's interested in crime fiction because it was clearly in that genre. It wasn't sort of didn't straddle something mm -hmm. else. And so there was that, and then there was, would they accept a story up to 10,000 words? And that's what led me to that publisher. Would you like to read a little bit of it? For sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So the story is called The Sunsets in the Hall of Justice, and it's in an anthology which was just published about a week ago from Murderous Inc. Press. 
out of the UK, but it's available in the US. You can get it on Amazon or at a local bookstore. If you want to order it, it's an ebook and a print version. So I'll just read the beginning of it and stop at uh, an appropriate place. Sounds good. All right. I was in Jake's Joint on Broadway, across from the north side of the Los Angeles County Hall of Justice, eating ham and eggs for breakfast and reading the Los Angeles Informer, when Daphne Drucker sat down next to me and slid a small saddle-stitched notebook in front of me, the kind you pick up in a dime store for making grocery lists. I looked at her. Coffee, I said. Read that, she said, and picked up a slice of ham off my plate with her fingers and began to nibble on it. You hungry, I asked. I called out to the proprietor. Hey, Manny, get the girl something to eat. Manny, the proprietor, ambled over to us at the counter and refilled my coffee. Manny was about twice as old as California and only half as sunny, but he kept your coffee cup filled. I had no idea who that Jake was for whom the coffee shop was presumably named. I had only ever known Manny to run the joint. Maybe he thought Manny's joint didn't have the right ring to it. What are you having, Daffy? He asked. Everyone called Daphne Daffy, which was a laugh and a half because she was anything but. She was, if anything, kind of over-serious and a little dour at times, although she saved her playfulness and sense of humor for a select few, which, for some reason, included me. And I won't lie to you, that made me feel pretty good. Just coffee for me, thanks, Manny, she said. Manny poured her a cup and moved down the counter to provide refills for the other customers. For an old guy, he moved fast, and he never spilled a drop, even if that was because he was too cheap to waste any. Hey, look at that, Daffy said, pointing to the front page of my paper. They discovered radio waves emanating from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. She further perused the headlines. And they say prohibition might be over by the end of the year. And let's see what else. FDR says the Tennessee Valley Authority is going to bring electricity to all the hillbillies over there. And Sally Rand did her fan dance at the Chicago World's Fair. Daffy looked up at me and smiled. Daffy didn't smile often, but when she did, she lit things up, including me. I pointed to another headline. Also, Paraguay declared war on Bolivia, I said. Daffy frowned. Listen to you, gloomy Gus. I pointed to another and Hitler's burning books in Germany. She looked at me curiously. I didn't know you read books, Rusty. Sure, I read books, I said. Some of them don't even have pictures in them. Daffy picked up the notebook and held it out to me. Prove it. I took the notebook from her and flipped through it. The pages were filled with a cursive scrawl, a schoolgirl's scrawl, written in ink of a variety of colors, including, occasionally, pink. The pages were ragged, Frayed of the edges, and in some places, the ink ran from apparent droplets of either coffee, water, whiskey, or maybe tears. I've dog-eared the pages to which you need to pay close attention, Daffy said. She had a crisp way of talking, like an actress, although there was nothing pretend about Daffy. Daffy was a hard blonde. I didn't know her age, but I knew at the age of 15, she told them she was 17, she'd driven an ambulance near the front during the war, so I'd have guessed her to be just to the north side of 30. She wore bright lipstick and very little makeup besides, and she worked as a secretary for the district attorney's investigators, of which I was one. Or boss, Burton Fitzgerald, the L.A. County D.A., 
like the department secretaries, to perform efficiently and to act dumb, to file paperwork, take dictation, and not ask any questions. Daffy could file with the best of them, but I guess she was so efficient, old Fitz hadn't caught on to how smart she really was. Or maybe he had. Her smarts, after all, were hard to miss, and Fitz was anything but stupid himself. Daffy was pretty as hell, but she never played it up, never giving smiles out to her male co-workers or flirting with them on coffee breaks. She was serious and uninviting, at least to most. I guess I knew her a little better than most. I knew she could be whip-smart funny and that she had that killer smile if she had something to smile about. I read one of the dog-eared pages. I'm not so dumb myself, and pretty quick, a sinking feeling settled in my gut over what those words described. I looked up at Daffy. Where do you get this? I asked. Prosty roused last night, she said. Took it off a working girl, cooling her heels and holding. I held up the notebook. Isn't that stealing evidence? That's the thing, Rusty, she said. No one's treating it as evidence. No one's treating it as anything at all. No one wants to read what's in it. No one cares. I read another of the dog-eared pages. But you do, I said. You care. And I'll leave it there for That's now. That's great. It's like a way of turning the dog-eared pages and drawing me in. <laughs> it, when you're writing a novel as opposed to a play, actually in our 2014 interview, I found you uh, your description of your first playwriting attempt, and I'm going to read it back to you. I wound up writing material in order to give... Uh, this took place at college, right? Yes, I believe? my first play. Okay, mm -hmm. so I wound up writing material in order to give myself and my friends good parts. There was basically no tech. and more or less turned on the lights and we were on stage. It didn't take me long to realize that I had enough pride in my playwriting to know I should have, should have a better actor than me reading my words. Still feel that way? Um, yeah, although I have started to, I wouldn't say perform, but I have started to present my work in person more. Okay. Um, partly that came about through writing poetry and there's so many wonderful poetry events in the Hudson Valley that I've been able to be a part of or was before the pandemic. Fewer once the pandemic started, although I've done some online and I certainly bring to bear my theatrical training, uh, to a certain degree to those presentations, um, which is not to say I'm chewing the scenery and and running around the, the, the building, but I do have kind of a sense of how to present mm -hmm. a language in a hopefully interesting and somewhat dramatic way rather than just sort of reading it in a monotone. So It can, it can be much valued as a spectator at, at a poetry reading or... Yeah, any type of reading. Yes, well, definitely. So. I mean, I've, I've certainly, I certainly noticed the difference as an audience member between the uh, the you know wonderful poets who who kind of mumble their <laughs> words yeah. uh, into the microphone and those who who give it a little more color in their presentation of it. So, I still you know d uh, don't think of casting myself in um, a full length dramatic work that I write, but okay. um, I do I do often think about as I'm writing poetry or short stories about. Um, how I will present this in a reading, uh, because as a, you know, there's in addition to poetry events, there's um, various uh, events where people can read anything, prose, poetry, wh whatever, and I, I like to participate in those and and really enjoy reading my work out loud and giving it a little a little theatrical flair as I a do. Sizzle. A little sizzle, yeah. In terms of process, uh, how does playwriting differ for you from novel writing? 
if if at all. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I it does, but in complicated ways. So one of the things that's great about playwriting. Which is a little different from writing a book for a musical, right? But playwriting is this combination of, on the one hand, you have to narrow your vision in a physical sense. You have to have fewer scenes, fewer settings, I should say, or a very theatrical and cheap way to uh, go from location to location. And you have to limit the number of, if not characters, at least actors,、yeah. um, because of the economics of the theater. And the trade-off is you get to go into those characters and the kind of language that they speak in a really deep way, both their their who they are as as humans as well as how they express themselves verbally, as well as what they do. So that's exciting.、Uh, one of the, and then writing fiction. One of the things that's Kind of a, a little dizzying at first is you don't have to worry about whether you know you're setting a scene in a coffee shop or in the Hall of Justice or you know on a street or、uh, you know in a in a bar room. You know you can go wherever you want, and that's very exciting. At the same time, you don't want to lose the particularity of the way characters speak. And you don't want to lose their quirks as human beings. That makes them individual. And at the same time, you can add the element of what characters are thinking. I remember reading an interview with、um, Peter Hedges, who is the guy who wrote the novel and then later the screenplay for、uh, the Gilbert Grape movie. I don't know if you remember that with Johnny Depp and、yeah. uh, a very young Leonardo DiCaprio. And、uh, he said that he didn't find writing that novel so difficult. Because he was a playwright before he became a novelist, but the novel was written in first person. So he said to him, it was just like writing a long monologue.、Right. Now, interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, but to me, it's interesting. <laughs> a lot of my my、uh, prose fiction up until recently, I've written in the third person, partly because I wanted to be able to get in and out of the minds of different characters. But、um, since the pandemic, I've started、um, redoubling my efforts to write fiction, and I've published, I think, three short stories three,、uh, in that time, and they've all been first-person narration. And part of that is because I've sort of fallen in love all over again with the voice of, with a narrative voice. So uh, uh, now that limits the number of people whose heads you can get into. Um, but it does allow you to get into the head of the the narrator in a in a deep way. So that's something that's interesting and different from playwriting for the most part, unless you're Shakespeare and you know you have characters you making as, you know asides to the audience. Unless you're using that technique, most of the time we figure out what characters are thinking through hints that you know if they're what they're thinking is slightly different from what they're saying.、Um, so they may say one thing, do another thing, and then we sort of as the audience we sort of figure out the mystery of what's really going on. In their minds, and sometimes we don't know until the end where it all becomes clear. So, in writing fiction,、um, I'm able to sort of keep track of all those variations much more directly. So that's really fun. But in terms of like the drama, in terms of the storytelling, it's not that different in the sense that both in my fiction and in my dramatic works, I think in terms of here's a scene, here's what the characters are doing, here's what they're saying, and In the case of fiction, here's what they're thinking. Be kind of an interesting premise to assign, or you know, to even assign to yourself a a premise, you know, as a setting and a couple of characters, and then say you've got you've got a few hours to write it as fiction and another few hours as a play, and see what you came up with. Yeah, I've never done that myself, but I think it'd be kind of 
intriguing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have, you know, I do um, occasional writing workshops. That's another hat that I wear. I'm doing some in April, actually, in uh, up in Rhinebeck at a couple of different libraries, Rhinebeck and Kingston. And one of the... Um, uh, I hope no nobody in those writing workshops is listening to this because it'll kind of give away a surprise. But one of the writing exercises that I often do is I have my writers tell a story, a true story, something that really happened to them in which they, from a first person perspective in which they were in conflict with somebody. Then I have them rewrite it, but from the point of view of the person that they were in conflict with, and it has to be first person from that person's point of view, which sort of forces them to imagine the world from another character's point of view. And then I have them take that idea, turn it into a third person narrative and change something really fundamental. So for example, if you're having a an argument with your 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 sibling, you you put that in, you know, a much different context, a historical context or a a science fiction context or something really bold and really change which changes then the nature of the conversation. Sounds like this could be like a real world application. Oh yeah, easily. totally. I do think it has a real world application because it forces you to think about other people's points of view. Definitely. Yeah. Darn it. You have to sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You mentioned going to Rhinebeck to do this. I, I, I associate seeing your name in various ways in the Beacon community. What may people have encountered you doing? So most recently, I mentioned that I've been writing more poetry before the pandemic, and I was appointed the Poet Laureate of Beacon for the 2019 I would have dressed better had I known. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was a great job. And I really, I feel like I made the most of it for the first year. Then the second year, the pandemic came in. It was 20, 2019, 2020. And so the, I literally had, I think, half a dozen poetry events that had been scheduled that were all canceled because of the pandemic. But I had a wonderful time doing it while I could. And I did, you know, readings at the library. I did I read poetry at the uh, Pumpkin Festival and the Strawberry Festival down by the riverfront. Mm -hmm. um, I did various poetry events outside of Beacon, places like Marlboro and Poughkeepsie and stuff like that. And hopefully representing uh, uh, Beacon in a good way. And so that was super fun. So um, and then before that, years ago now, uh, I was president of the Beacon Hebrew Alliance for two years. And before that, I was the recording secretary there. Um, and I was also a library trustee at the Howland Public Library for several years. So those, yeah. A those, great way to come to know a community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever used Beacon as a backdrop for a story? It's funny that you ask that because in addition to the novel that I'm working on, I've started poking around with an idea of a uh, kind of a mystery, I guess. I guess a mystery. Um, I was sort of inspired by this this story, which is very American, is in a British publisher, and I started rediscovering some of the great British mystery writers. Everything from the more traditional ones like Agatha Christie to the more contemporary ones like P. D. James and um, Ruth Rendell, who write about you know detective inspectors, you know, um, and and they are pretty realistic, gritty crime stories, but they definitely have a different kind of flavor to them than the American ones do. They're less, there's less shooting, much more investigating, much more character. So I started thinking about a small town crime situation. And I started saying, well, you know, I do so much research. It'd be nice if I could just do something I didn't have to research a lot. True. So I did start writing something set in a town modeled on Beacon, although I don't call it Beacon. <laughs> I call it Melzinga Falls. Falls. <laughs> just modeled, though. Just yeah. modeled, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I started working on that. And I actually got the, the crime was inspired by an actual 
crime that occurred about 20 years ago in Poughkeepsie with a bunch of um, town officials in the town of Poughkeepsie, I should say, not the city of Poughkeepsie, um, who were involved in a kickback scheme for contracting. And that's that's sort of inspired the crime, although I've also fictionalized it a great deal. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's basically, it's modeled after Beacon, but I changed the names of every location so as not to get myself in too much trouble. And <laughs> also planning a, on being here for another exactly, 20 years. Right. Yeah. So nobody, nobody who is a public official in Beacon should think that this is in any way a reflection on their good character. It's just the setting uh, is modeled on the place I know best. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today, Peter Yulian. And thank you for having me. This is delightful. Thank you for listening to the Highlands Current Podcast. This episode was produced by Zach Rogers and recorded and edited by Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, leave us a review on your listening app of choice, and consider becoming a member of The Current. The paper and website and this podcast are offered free to the community, paid for with support from our readers and listeners. To join for as little as $24 annually, visit highlandscurrent.org slash join. That's highlandscurrent.org slash join. Or catch up anytime on the latest news at highlandscurrent.org or pick up a copy of the print paper every Friday. Thanks again. I'm Chip Rowe, editor of The Current, and we'll see you next time.